Welcome to Breakthrough Barriers with Damali. I'm your host, Damali Peterman. On this podcast, we introduce our new season's theme, Resilience, and I, along with the guest co-host, will share how we remain resilient amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. We want to inspire our listeners to continue to break through. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, I'm thrilled to have Shamal Idris, the CEO of Search for Common Ground. Shamal, welcome to the show. Molly, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Uh, the pleasure is all mine, and I know our guests are excited to learn more about you. Shamal is leading around 900 staff in 31 countries to end violent conflict. As CEO of Celia from 2008 to 2014, Shamal oversaw a public-private coalition to establish the field of virtual exchange, pioneering interactive media as a tool for cross-cultural trust. In 2005, Shama was appointed by UN Secretary General Kofi Annan as Deputy Director of the UN Alliance of Civilizations, seeking to improve relations between Western and Muslim-majority countries. Previously, Shama had helped establish and served on the steering committee of the World Economic Forum's Council of 100 Leaders. Wow, Shama, I'm wondering if you sleep. Probably more than you do. I've seen what you're <laughs> up to, but uh, yeah, no, I've been very lucky in my in my career. So. Well, I think that you have been lucky, but also very devoted to peace building, which is evident from the work that you do. And I can't wait for our listeners to hear more about you. Today, you and I are going to focus on the theme of resilience as it relates to conflict and how you, your company, and your industry navigated the past 20 months and this ongoing pandemic. The goal is to continue to encourage and inspire our listeners so that they can break through. We will have a comfy, informal, and free-flowing chat, and our listeners should feel as if they're eavesdropping on a private conversation between two friends. What do you think, Shamal? Sounds good. I hope to divulge secrets. <laughs> well, hopefully no state secrets. Um, so I usually like to tell our listeners how I know our guests. And I have to say, I was so fortunate to have been introduced to Shamal by a common friend of ours, um, David Ross. David Ross currently serves on the President's Leadership Council of Search for Common Ground. And prior to that, he was a board member. And I know David Ross because he is a colleague of mine at JAMS, where we both serve as mediators and arbitrators. And it's been quite a whirlwind friendship, I would say, Shamal, where very shortly after being introduced to you, I was able to see you speak in person in New York City, um, hosted at one of the very uh, elite uh, and, ups and upscale social clubs, where you're talking about some of the amazing projects. And not only that, just the mission and how you're in actually implementing the mission of Search for Common Ground. I was then able to attend the award ceremony for Common Ground, where you highlighted the work of individuals and organizations around the globe that are committed to peace building, among other things. And so I've just been so delighted to just be in your in your orbit. Uh, the the thrill is all mine. Actually, I was very. I, I've thanked David multiple times for introducing us, um, and it's interesting because as we've gotten to know each other, we're clearly sort of fellow travelers. Uh, this peace building community and this alternative dispute resolution community is just growing more and more. So I always love when I connect with somebody like you who's well down the path that that we're on as well. 
It's true. And it's, it's definitely growing at the same time. I feel like we are a close knit community and that we have a lot in, in common. So it's always wonderful to meet another, a fellow kindred spirit who's devoted to peace building. And so I've just shared a lot about you in your bio, but I'm curious to know, what do you want people to know about you? Describe yourself in six words. A peace builder, father of teenagers, <laughs> uh, and a lover of movies. That's probably more than six words. I like that. So interesting. Peace builder, father of father of teenagers, and lover of movies. Interesting. And and are you are you only watching peace building movies these days? No, no, no. Yeah, no. Watch everything. Uh, I, I love. I really miss. You know, we all miss things because of this pandemic. I really miss going to the theater. That experience. So I'm watching all kinds of things at home with my kids and my wife, and sometimes with friends. But uh, I miss that experience. I love the movie theater. I have to say, I also love the movie theater. And my youngest son, he loves the movie theater because he likes to get ices from the movie theater. It's all, think, it's all part of it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's what he misses the most. So you are in this field. The first word that you used was peace builder. And you are in the peace building industry and community. And so I'm curious to know, how did you get here? Why are you in this field? I mean, things kind of look very linear in retrospect. Uh, I, I, I've never been somebody who followed uh, a plan. I, I, I've taken opportunities when they've come up and I felt very fortunate that wonderful opportunities have opened up for me. But when I look in retrospect, I think the seeds of this career for me, which is really a vocation more than a job, uh, came from how I was raised. I, I grew up across religious, uh, national, political dividing lines, not in any dramatic way, but my parents were immigrants from Turkey and Syria. Uh, the town I grew up in, uh, we were the only Muslim family in town when I was growing up. We used to travel back from New Canaan, Connecticut, where I grew up to Duzja, Turkey, uh, where the vast majority of my mother's family was for the full summer, every summer until I started getting summer jobs. And I think I just saw a real value and, and had deep friendships and family across a lot of those dividing lines. And so uh, sometimes people had strong negative views about one another that not only did I not share, but in some ways hurt me because I felt part of these different communities from political liberals to political conservatives, from Muslims to Jews, from Turks to Americans, so all these different dividing lines. And so I think the if I look back on it, I think the seeds were planted way back then. So your upbringing really sort of led to you being in this ongoing path of this vocation of peace building. And I love hearing a little bit more about you. I didn't know that. I didn't know that your family was from Turkey um, and I had immigrated here. And I also love hearing how you saw even common ground back then. It's the different between different political views, different um, religious uh, communities, among other things. And I want to make sure that everyone has a good sense of your vocation, what you do, what is common ground. There's the organization I lead, just search for common ground. And we have a methodology, the common ground approach. And the reason I am here is because uh, that approach uh, completely resonates with uh, my values and what I also see in the world as being increasingly needed. And basically, the common ground approach starts from a couple of premises. One is that conflict is inevitable. Conflict is just a natural friction that happens across cultural, religious, racial, any other dividing lines, you know, that when differences come into contact with one another, there's friction. And friction can be really great. Conflict can, can lead to creative solutions and problem solving. 
And friction can be really bad. If handled badly, conflict can lead to polarization or even violence. And so that's the starting point is that we're not, you know, peace building is not, uh, in our view, and certainly not my personal view, about ending conflict or even avoiding or preventing conflict. It's about getting the most out of conflict and preventing the worst from it. You know, so I think that's the starting point. And then in terms of what you, okay, what does you actually do? Um, we we build trust across dividing lines in different communities around the world. Uh, we have nearly a thousand full-time peace builders working in 30 countries around the world, including here in the United States. And you can think about our process in really three steps. The first is we try to humanize across dividing lines, right? So um, try to get people from sitting across from the table, seeing each other as the problem, to see, sitting on the same side of the table, maybe facing a common problem together. And so the way you do that is you find some starting point of commonality. It could be a shared passion. It could be a shared sport. It could be anything that people are willing. It could be going to a movie theater together to watch some, you know, but something that establishes a relationship, you know, so humanize is always the first step. And, and, and you don't know what's going to humanize people across dividing lines until you get to know them and you get to know their culture and their perspectives. And then the second step is to mobilize them, moving from beyond people talking to each other to actually doing something together. The fundamental building block of any healthy community is trust, right? And, and nothing builds trust like shared success. Having people actually do something together that, that, that benefits them, that puts them in a better place afterwards than they were before. So mobilizing people around shared concerns, whether it's between police and citizens or Republicans and Democrats or Jews and Muslims or blacks and whites or whatever it might be in any community, um, that's the second step is, is mobilizing. And then the third step is, driving all of that cooperation and trust building towards really systemic change. You know, we're not so much about just resolving individual disputes, though that's really important to do along the pathway. Um, but we really want to see a shift in the way communities deal with difference and deal with conflict away from sort of adversarial win-lose approaches towards collaboration. And so when you, when you translate cooperation into systemic change, it usually looks like institutional change, uh, a ministry performs differently, a police force polices differently, uh, you know, media outlets cover conflict differently or a change in, in culture, you know, just the norms, how we deal with each other, uh, how we handle our differences. Um, and so that's basic three-step process, but really, Damali, breaking it all down to the very human level, it starts from a belief that conflict is natural, conflict can even be a good thing if we embrace it uh, and, and deal with each other with real dignity and respect throughout the process. And, and that is something that I think is applicable to every industry, any type of uh, conflict that's arising, whether it's domestic, international, to your point, whether it's different political views, different sects of, of religions, et cetera. Um, it is so true that conflict is inevitable. And I think I have often seen in some of your literature that conflict is inevitable, but violence is not. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and I love also you sharing the processes, sort of this three-step process of going from humanizing to mobilizing and then to driving systemic change. I think that those are also three very pragmatic and practical approaches that people can utilize, you know, across a variety of different settings. And I know that you also shared with me and others listening to some of the amazing talks that you've given about common ground and, pardon me, search for common ground or search as sometimes you call it. And I had on my desk for a while, this amazing, um, notepad that said what search stood for. Um, and I know it's here buried under the stack of papers yeah. that you can't see on screen. We'll send you another one. 
Please do. I, lo- I love Search for Common Ground swag. I really do. I, I used my backpack to go to tennis the other day. Um, I love it. I love it. Um, but you have shared some really amazing stories that really show uh, anecdotally the impact of some of the work that you've done. And I would love to invite you to share uh, one or two of those stories. We had uh, we had a, a member of our team in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, huge country, 90 million people uh, in Central Africa who had a, got a call on his cell phone uh, from somebody who's made his blood run cold. It was a fairly notorious warlord. The first thing he thought is, how did this guy get my cell phone? <laughs> Uh, and the person said, I, I heard that you've been working with people in our community on something. And, and our team there had been doing some training and some support for exactly this kind of approach to how you deal with difference, how you solve everyday problems, not even huge, big political issues, just access to water or dealing with whatever is coming up in the community. Uh, so I heard this, the guy says, I, I heard that you've been working with people in our community. And our, our guy said, yeah. And he was sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And he said, you know, is there any way, how can I get access? You know, and how can our people get access? He meant like <laughs> the, the group he was leading, the armed group, to this kind of training. And I share that story because I don't remember a time in my lifetime when my own communities were as polarized as they are today. And repeatedly, uh, we see that the most daunting and challenging part of engaging across difference is the anticipation before you actually do it. Um, because you should build up these caricatures of each other, that uh, everything they believe and everything they would do. And, it, you know, and then actually, you know, when you, uh, it's not like it's all roses. Oftentimes you're dealing with people who just fundamentally disagree on things that are really important to you. Uh, so I don't want to be Pollyannish about this, but time and time again, what we find when you engage in this work in a principled and patient kind of way and in a courageous way, you'll be really surprised at the folks who are drawn to it. So that's the first story I would tell. Let me go tell you one other story, a quick one. We celebrated at the awards event we did a few years ago, not the one that you just attended. The most uh, followed investigative journalist in uh, in Sierra Leone. Uh, and this was a guy, Michael Simbola, who started out uh, as a cub journalist. We were doing a program during the Civil War in Sierra Leone and in neighboring Liberia called Golden Kids News. And we were trying to find a way in the midst of the war, in the midst of under Charles Taylor's Liberia, which was incredibly autocratic, we were trying to find a way to open up discussion and connect the country across its dividing lines. And our team there came up with the idea of training cub journalists, 12-year-olds, to be reporters and to run their own show, not just to do a show for kids, but actually to do a show led by kids for the country. And so it was called Golden Kids News. And what we found out, which we didn't realize going in, is that kid journalists could ask questions of colonels in the military, senior officials in the government, that no adult journalist could get away with. And these people would actually answer because they're talking to a kid. They're like, oh, it's so cute. And and it opened up. Those shows became hugely popular. Golden Kids News. We did it both in Liberia and Sierra Leone. In any event, it was so wonderful over a decade later to celebrate Michael, who went on from joining that program as a 12-year-old cub journalist to now running his own show that has over a million listeners a week. And he is known as the most uh, respected and feared, in a good way, investigative journalist in all of his country. Um, And it was lovely just to see that. Uh, And that all grew, you know, under real serious conflict, terrible, violent conflict in that country. Uh, 
by investing in people that oftentimes folks ignore, which is which is children. You know, that those are such wonderful stories, especially, you know, hearing about um, a gentleman in the Congo and how the programs that you were working on and he was working on were, you know, so I'll say meaningful and popular that even someone who was a warlord wanted to be a part of it. And and also uh, listening to this golden cub news kids, journalist. Golden kids, kids news. Golden kids news for a cub journalist. Um, wow. I mean, I can't imagine the impact that that had on his life as a 12-year-old. Um, and also, to your point, kids can't get away with <laughs> asking many questions. I think about that on a regular basis as I navigate um, conflict resolution modules kids, right? <laughs> they, also just, they don't buy into the dividing lines that the, that the older generation like us or me, speaking for myself, sometimes pass out to them. So they'll ask very innocent questions that go right, you know, if you, <laughs> my daughters will say things to me. They'll be like, ouch, that hurt. And it's so true. And, and so, uh, you know, it's the impact that it has on those kids. But honestly, it's the impact that when you give them a platform that they actually can have in a very divided society. I'd love to see more children's perspectives commenting on and asking questions about the dividing lines in this country right now, because I think it would really challenge some of us adults on our own behavior. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. And not only would it challenge us, it might make us change our perspectives, because if this is how we're being perceived by the children, the future, then that might actually help drive change, right? And, yeah. you know, uh, a lot of the work that you do um, it's challenging and during challenging situations and over the last 20 or so months in this pandemic and ongoing pandemic, I suspect that you've encountered some challenges and sort of running your global operations and working in your industry. And so what was your single biggest challenge? Well, wow. yeah, uh, you know, we had in the last year alone, um, there have been coups, political conflict in about a third of the countries where we were. I've never seen a year with more political disruption, political violence uh, in the places where we work than this year. And that's on top of what you're pointing to, which is the pandemic, which has literally affected every human being's life, one way or the other. You know, so um, I think the balance of sort of staying committed and optimistic. Uh, I am a congenitively optimistic person. I don't think, well, maybe I'm sometimes naive, but I'm, I think I'm more a grounded optimist than I am naive. But this has been a hard year to stay optimistic. Um, the communities that I'm a part of, right down to my girls, my, my one of my daughter's schools, um, have been really divided over everything from race relations to political you know, elections to... Um, so maintaining that optimism, because, you know, it's a cliche, but hope is really the fundamental starting point for any change. Without hope, you might as well just give up. I love, we're talking about, I told you I love movies. My favorite line from The Shawshank Redemption uh, is that great film, you know, is when Morgan Freeman's character is sort of telling Tim Robbins' character, like, just give it up. You're, you're not, you stop pretending you're going to get out of this prison and you're going to go, you know, run a business, you're renting boats out, whatever. And Robbins responds, well, I guess it comes down to a choice, either get busy living or get busy dying, you know, and you choose to get busy living. I think this year, more than any other year, maintaining that hope in a grounded way, not just a Pollyanna, like, gee, I think maybe, uh, has been hard. And uh, I think a key for me has been maintaining those connections across our global organization. We have people in Myanmar dealing with the coup there. We have teams, my last call before this was with our uh, member of our team in Afghanistan. 
that is still on the ground there doing work after the Taliban takeover. And these people rejuvenate hope in each other and in myself, and I and I hope we do that for each other. So networks are, whether it's your family, your friends, I think it's hugely important. <laughs> um, I don't think resilience is, you know, a lot of times I think people think of resilience as something that's really about inner strength, and I'm sure there's a huge component to that, but I find it really difficult to to persevere through this last year without uh, maintaining and reaching out for some of those human connections because it really has reinvigorated the, the hope in, in myself. And it's a big part why our organization has been fortunate over this last year. We not only, you know, stayed steady, but we actually grew fairly significantly this last year and launched our very ambitious U.S. program uh, just in the last year, which you know about. So, um, so yeah, I think that's what I would reflect on. And I think it's a, an amazing reflection because many people can relate to, you know, trying to find different ways to maintain their hope, especially when you don't know what's happening and things are unfolding in front of you. And in your situation, especially with your global community and the staff that you manage and the work that you do, there are also things outside of your control with, like, with respect to cools and other things that are happening, and yet you still persevered. Um, and I, it's really great to just remember those human connections. I mean, there was a part... There was a time during the pandemic where we were in many countries, uh, definitely in the United States, we were asked to quarantine, right? And so some people had to actually do that, and they may not have had any other, you know, family members, you know, quarantining with them. And so, as and now as we continue to be in this virtual world, I mean, back in the old days, Shamal, I was recording my podcast in the studio um, in Manhattan, and while there benefits to doing that. I was going to say pros to doing that. What's amazing now is that I, instead of going to Ghana and India, which I did before taking the podcast on the road, now I could talk to anyone from Zoom. So there are some good things yeah. that came out of it, but the human connection can really not be replaced, right? And also just kind of hearing what you said about resilience with respect to it being something that oftentimes people think is being an inner source of resilience. It's interesting because when I think about resilience, I think about it as being something that you can tap into, but also something that you can replenish and you can replenish it from different sources. And I like to think of that Elton John song, you know, because like that Elton John song, you are still standing, Shamal. And okay. so I would love for you to share where your resilience comes from and how you tap into it. It was interesting. We went through a process in the organization of, of uh, articulating our organizational values. Right? And I know a lot of organizations do this. This was a really meaningful process for us. I mean, we've been around, March will be our 40th year anniversary. And, and we've often, we've very regularly revisited the values of our approach to resolving conflict, like our, the work that we do out in the world. And we've drilled down into those values and principles. We've updated them, you know, road tested them. But the values of the organization are something different. They have to be equally relevant to the accountant who doesn't isn't doing peace building out in the world directly, but is supporting it, to, or the driver, or the whatever it might be. And and we have these five values, and I, I think at least two of them you would find in most peace building organizations, right? Collaboration, empathy, results is an important one to us that we're not just about process, but there are two that are really so specific. To, in my view, as I reflect on your question about resilience. Um, audacity and tenacity, that uh, that when we talk to people in the organization about what, you know, this values process wasn't one where we defined it from headquarters, but we actually asked people, what drew you here? 
What keeps you here? What do you think makes this organization distinctive? And those two resonated really powerfully. And when you talk to people from, you know, Sierra Leone and Sri Lanka to Myanmar to Morocco to wherever to here in the U.S., you'll hear people real pride about the audacity of the goals we take on, but then also the tenacity, the stick to And I think what's kept me personally, um, helped me to get through this last period is really leaning on, on colleagues, family, and, and not, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I think as a, as an organizational leader, there are times where I feel like, you know, you have to be the strong one and, and you have to, but sharing vulnerability, there's a real place for that as well. And, and I remember talking to a member of our leadership team and just saying very openly, you know, I went through a stretch where I said, I don't think I could ever remember feeling this ineffective. Like weeks on end, I feel like I was spinning my wheels. I was like, what am I, am I getting anything done? And, uh, and she, she who's a very strong person, has been with the organization for a lot of years, said it's exactly the same thing. And we talked and it was very helpful for us both to just admit that to one another and ask each other, how did you work through it? How, you know, for, and for me, even little things like, um, you know, I, I ride my bike now every other day, weather permitting, before the day begins. I sometimes get out as early as five in the morning when it's still dark and I've got my little headlamp. I just, it is physically, it's made me a lot fitter than, I, than I've been for a good decade. Uh, but it's also been critically important to, to me, I realize over this last couple of years when so much of my time has been sitting in the same house that I'm sleeping in, working from it, doing every, you know, just getting out. Um, so that's been, you know, and for each of us, it's a different array of things. But if I had to name one thing, I, I'd say it would be leaning on and, and being willing to be vulnerable with uh, the, the, the people around me, just acknowledging how difficult this stretch has been. This is, I don't want, I don't think it's overstating it to, to say this might be in many ways, the, the hardest collective global experience in a century since the last pandemic, maybe. And it's not to say that everyone's suffering equally. That would be obscene. There are huge gaps and those inequities are being exacerbated right now. Uh, but it is also true that I think everyone has been deeply affected by this in, in highly personal, not just professional ways. So acknowledging that, leaning into that, speaking openly about that, being vulnerable with each other about how that's played out for each of us, that's been, at least for me, very helpful. And that's what this podcast is about. It's about sharing vulnerabilities. It's about sharing lessons um, that others can learn from. And also about finding ways to, especially for this particular season, to tap into our resilience and to try to prevent others from you know, making some mistakes that we have made in our past. And so, and, and before I move on to tapping into, you know, that next question about mistakes, um, I just want to highlight that you mentioned that you are, you know, riding your bike and riding in the morning. And I want to take a moment to kind of highlight that self-care because it's something that I think helps us to be resilient, right? To be in a place to be resilient is also finding ways to take care of ourselves. Um, yeah. Because for most of us, we're, you know, you are absolutely right. Uh, I don't know anyone, and I don't think there's anyone in the world who hasn't been impacted in some way, shape, or form um, from this pandemic. And to your point, whether it's personal or professional, it's really had a global impact. And so it's just important to recognize that you may not be able to see more than, you know, especially if you're looking at the Zoom screen, like what's going on in your box, um, but that there's a lot going on outside of that. 
outside of those little Zoom boxes for others. Um, and to the to the point where sometimes as we're kind of going through our own things or, or reflecting on what's happening in our lives, um, my, my point and goal here is to remind those listening and to extend grace to others who you know, may, who may be experiencing something that you may not be aware of, and maybe they can't articulate it for whatever reason. Um, but it's really important to just try to extend grace. This is ongoing. And, you know, we don't know how, I mean, I, I don't, I, I think like you, I'm optimistic. You, you mentioned that before and you said maybe a little naive. Um, and I probably have that in common with you. Um, in my optimism, I, I'm hopeful, to use another word that you mentioned earlier, I'm hopeful. And I also know that, you know, we still have some ways to go. And the only way that we're going to, you know, to my, my, in my opinion, really come out of this stronger is things like this, you know, kind of hearing from different experts in their fields, hearing how they manage and navigated the pandemic in their industries, and hearing about any mistakes that they made that they want to prevent others from making. And so I'd like to ask you that question now, Shamal. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you getting into extending grace. Uh, I love that word, and I and and I think it can this mistakes question links to that for me. I think I try to be empathetic. I'm in a profession where empathy is really critical to the work that we do. It's one of the five core values we've articulated in the organization. And yet, there's sometimes when I'm just blind to you know what's going on for other people. And I think especially in this last year and since the pandemic you know, not assuming that whatever it is that I need for that personal care is the same thing that other people need, but, but and recognize that everybody needs something uh, these days. And, and so even sort of silly little things, we might've talked about this, a, a very small tactical change that I made in my behavior. I, I never, before the last year, I don't think I ever used that function in your email where you can, um, where, where you can delay send, you know, like, and I realized that, you know, for me, there are times when uh, I'll get up early and I'll be uh, I'll be just raring to go even on like a Saturday and I'll bang out an hour, hour and a half emails and that'll feel great. And I'll feel that'll make me feel good for the rest of the weekend. I don't I you know, whatever. Uh, or I'll, I'll, I'll at the middle of the night, I'll want to get something done or whatever. Like, that's OK for me. That That's better for me than like I strictly work nine to five. And that's it. I can't that doesn't work for me. But I realize if I send a note out, especially as the CEO, no matter how, you know, nice a guy I think I am, for other people, when that lands in their inbox anywhere around the organization, it can feel, it, it could just be stressful in itself. Because I, I'm much more consistently now, very regularly, when I'm doing emailing or something like that, I use that time function to try and make sure that nobody's going to get stuff from me until, you know, work hours. Um, obviously, there are sometimes urgencies where you can't do that. But little things like that were things that were meaningful changes that were the result of making mistakes but we're not thinking about you know what what other people need um particularly these days when it comes to self-care that self-care is not just something that you initiate and do yourself but it's it's also something that that the rest of your family your friends your work colleagues whatever can contribute to um and that you can contribute to for others so so that's just a little one for as an example Damali. but it's i've been reflecting a lot more on on the fact that um Everybody needs some support right now, literally everybody, I think. And so trying to be more sensitive to, uh, to what those needs are and, and provide them. It's, it doesn't bother, it doesn't hurt at all 
for me to make that little difference, but it can make an important difference in other people's lives. It's definitely impactful. And I am like you, like I feel so accomplished if I <laughs> crossed off all those things on my list and I have all my emails set to go. And you're right. Um, it can, it could land slightly differently just from the mere fact that you're the CEO. And I, and so I totally get that. And I, I love that you reflected on that and that you implemented that change, which I'm sure, especially given the global community that you serve, that that makes a huge difference. Um, so I don't think it's a small thing. I think it's actually the impact of it is quite great. And my last question for you is in line with that last tidbit, that tip that you gave us. Um, my mom used to always say to my siblings and I, each one teach one. And I know that's not you know something that she originated, but it really stuck with me as a kid and currently as a person who's running multiple organizations. And so I would love to hear from you um, sort of what your suggestions are for a book, song, course, or program for our listeners. There are just a couple of books that I've read and reread multiple times. Um, and that's, I don't do that normally. But one of them is the autobiography of Malcolm X. And, you know, I grew up, um, I grew up in Eugene, Connecticut, a very well-to-do part of the country. Uh, and, and again, it was from the immigrant background. My parents, every, it was a fairly typical immigrant story in the sense that everything they did was to get my brother and myself to the best public education system that they could possibly you know, afford. And so when I was seven years old, we moved there. But then being from Syria and Turkey, they were, our family was different in Ukraine. And we, there weren't a lot of folks uh, uh, like us. And my father, uh, he was interested in all things Islam, you know, history, and also here in the U.S. Now that he was an American, he wanted to learn about the history of Muslims in the U.S. And so I remember hearing, I think we were probably the only family in Ukraine and Connecticut. I wake up Sunday morning, it used to drive me crazy. I'm hearing Malcolm X's speeches like played on the, on, on my, the, the tape recorder that my dad was listening to. He listened to these speeches. And, um, and so that got me very interested. And this was before, you know, Spike Lee did the film and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, when I read that book, it just, uh, it blew me away. And the number one, there are a lot of lessons from his life that I find very compelling. And part I'm thinking about this because when you and I were last together on the awards event, that was the very day that in New York, they reversed the convictions of two of the men you know, who were convicted and jailed for killing him. And, and twice in his life, uh, Malcolm X revisited everything that he stood for. Like the fundamental, he did something that most people I don't think have the courage to do even once, which is to really take a hard look at the direction his life was heading and what he was doing and, and, and to confront it and change it. So the first time he went from being quite a master quite a good criminal, quite an effective, you know, grifter and criminal to being a leader in the nation of Islam. And the second time was leaving the nation of Islam and, and going on the pilgrimage and, and, and becoming a, a Muslim, you know, traditional, whatever you might call it, not, 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 not a member of the nation. And the second time it got him, the first time it almost got him killed. And the second time it, it, it did get him killed. And that, his story the way is written by Alex Haley and, and that book, there's so many lessons that I get out of that uh, kind of, um, I don't want to even pretend I have anywhere near the courage that he had, but that steal my resolve and kind of uh, inspire me and challenge me to try to be um, courageous and to, to be authentic. Um, so that's a book that I just love. 
in terms of uh, we all need escapism as well. My big escapist podcast, I love this podcast series uh, that uh, Bill Simmons runs called The Rewatchables. It's a group of people talk, sitting around. They, they record about once every week where they pick a movie uh, and they just pull it up for an hour and a half. You know, they, 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 they tear it apart. Like, what were the little nitpicks with it? What was great about it? Was it the high point of anyone's career? What were, who would have been cast in that, but then wasn't all this kind of, I love that. When I go on my long bike rides, I oftentimes listen to uh, an episode of the rewatchables while I'm on. So those are two very different ends of the spectrum of what I get out of them. But uh, those are two, uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X and the rewatchables podcast. Oh, two really great uh, suggestions, Shamo. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Tamali. So good to know you. Oh, the feeling is certainly mutual. I'd like to also thank our audience for tuning in. I'm your host, Damali Peterman, and this is Breakthrough Barriers with Damali. Continue to break through and have a wonderful day. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Breakthrough ADR. That's the at sign, B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H capital A, capital D, capital R. I'm your host, Damali Peterman, and this is Breakthrough Barriers with Damali. Although I am a lawyer, mediator, and an educator, and many of my co-hosts will represent various professions, we want to be clear that we are not providing legal advice, counseling, or suggestions. Our goal is to provide a roadmap for conflict resolution to generate future conflict resolvers. Continue to break through and have a wonderful day.